This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 3, Episode 4. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by Excess Sites. Today is Wednesday, July 21st, 2021, as of the recording of this show. And I'm your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by founder and company president, Mr. Jacob S. Paulson. I feel like there should be some music playing. <laughs> well, there is very subtle background music that is put in in post-processing. That's but right. but you mean like a, like a, what do you call that? A walk-on song. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. I, you just really built it up really good. Like you just... Sounds like a radio announcer. And so I thought, yeah, there should be music with this. This would be an interesting question. What would you choose for a walk-on song? Hmm. Final Countdown for sure. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I don't know why, but what just came to my mind was an old classic, which yours is too, but Chariots of Fire. You know? <laughs> classic. Do, do, classic. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Anyway, so guys, welcome to the show today. This is a legislative news updates episode, so we look forward to bringing to you the latest legislative news. Uh, we want to keep you guys up to speed on all the goings-on in the industry, politically speaking, as it relates to your Second Amendment rights. We got some pro-gun and anti-gun news for you here today, including some developments that we're unfortunate to learn about. Uh, you know, we had, uh, I think somebody just launched a firework outside my window. Anyway, you know, one of those whistling, you know, bottle mm -hmm. rockets. Anyway, um, including uh, an update out of Louisiana. So kind of some unfortunate news there. We were looking forward to constitutional carry there, but looks like it may not be yet to be for the state of Louisiana. Uh, whereas there have been several other states that have joined the ranks of constitutional carry states this year. We've got some other important news we'll bring to you here shortly. But first, today's episode is brought to you by Excess Sites, our title sponsor. And uh, we are so proud to have them as a sponsor of the podcast. Excess Sites is, is a, are sites I've been using for several years now. People have long heard I'm a huge fan of the F8 Night Sites. Still am. I think they're fantastic. Um, Still have them on several of my guns and, and shoot and use those frequently. So F8 Night Sights, my pick. Jacob, they, do they have anything that interests you? Uh, so you, you I like the F8s all right, too, don't I like you? The F8s, uh, I like the F8s just fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I I, the truth is the I'm, not as, I'm not as discerning as you would be like <laughs> the real truth. Like I'm less picky. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, like, I like their big dot. I think that's fine. I think that they have lots of sites that meet my basic criteria, which is bright front site that's easily findable in dark black mm -hmm. do rear notch. Yeah. Right. So the F8s, I think you like and are drawn to just because they're they're like exaggerated that criteria. Like that criteria is met like times five. It's just really distinct. Mm -hmm. But I think I think that all their sites you know can do that depending on how you combine the front and rear sites. Yeah. One thing they do that's kind of interesting and unique as compared to some of their competitors is you know they, they have the bright high contrast like let's say orange in the case of the F8s that I have on my guns, they're, they're a bright orange circle on the front sight. 
But what maybe maybe people don't realize is they actually also use photoluminescent technology with those dots so that when you can like if you get sun light source on them or even light source like if I was if I was in a low light situation and I was doing like a neck index or FBI uh, type light light technique, it would actually illuminate that front sight and it would actually glow like a photo like a very almost like neon bright color. Um, and that's something that a lot of other sites actually don't do. So you actually get, first off, you basically get three ways that the sites can contrast. You get the bright orange of the color of the site. And they do have some other sites with different colors, but I like the orange quite a bit for me personally. Then you get this kind of like glowing neon yellow greenish color when it, when the photoluminescence is activated. And then you also get the center tritium Die or uh, tritium vial, uh, a dot on the front site as well. So there's there's three ways really that you're going to be able to see these sites in a variety of lighting conditions, and that's the thing that I appreciate about them is that they're visible in virtually all lighting conditions. So and I'm, by the way, I, I don't excuse the fact that like like we should be using light and stuff to identify threats before we shoot. Like night sites are not quite as in vogue as they once were. But it's nice to know that you've got solutions for like all these different lighting circumstances or situations you might find yourself in. And the only site company I know that does it quite as well is XS Sites. So in vogue, that was that was nice. That was big words. Sometimes I pull things out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, the I guess I, what I would add is that XS Sites is extremely competitive price wise, and they're made in the U.S. Yes, and that is a pretty impressive made combination. Made in Texas, the great state of Texas. So, and we've talked about that before when, when we've uh, talked about them as sponsors of the podcast as well. They're also sponsors of our Guardian Conference later this year uh, in September in Oklahoma City. So, we're really excited to have them on board with that as well. Guys, check out XS Sites at xssites.com. That is the letter X, letter S sites, as you would normally spell it. So, xssighets.com. Also, we're excited to announce to you, now neither Jacob nor I are wearing one yet, because that's how new it is. Jacob has one, I believe. I do not. And that is the brand, yeah, you just barely got it. The brand new concealedcarry.com shall not be infringed t-shirt. Uh, it's a pretty cool design. In fact, I, I've got a screen share I can do here for those of you that are viewing along with us. Uh, but this is just a this new new design that our, our guy, Mitch, put this together, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, sorry. It's not true. Mitch did not do this one. Oh, oh, right, right. Mitch also worked on something recently. I was thinking, you know, getting the two con- confused. But but here you go, guys. Those of you viewing, uh, it's just a cool, simple little design, uh, but cool, right? I mean, just reminding us of what our Second Amendment says, which is shall not be infringed. You got this cool little motif that's sort of a, a mock-up of a, you know, sort of a U.S. flag with stars and stripes, but the stripes are different models of guns and things. And it's just a cool, you know, sort of modern design. I like it. I'm excited to get my own. Check it out. Concealedcarry.com. Now where you can find the new shall not be infringed t-shirt is at concealedcarry.com forward slash infringed shirt. If you don't know how to spell that, look it up. Okay, I'll tell you. Concealedcarry.com forward slash I-N-F-R-I-N-G-E-D S-H-I-R-T. Sorry if I kind of bungled that a little bit. Infringed shirt. 
Anyway, uh, guys, we appreciate your support of us, our sponsors, our site. You know, any orders that come through our site directly, we greatly appreciate. For products like this new "Shall Not Be Infringed" T-shirt, because I mean, this is how we make our living. All right, and if you if you don't shop from us or from our sponsors, then we don't make a living. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, this podcast has been sponsored since the beginning. Uh, as as a part of our business by concealedcarry.com. And uh, we hope that we can bring to you not only a great podcast in terms of content, but also great and valuable products on our site and from our sponsors as well. So thanks for supporting our sponsors that supports us. Today's episode, as I mentioned, is a legislative updates episode. I'm going to jump right into this first story, Jacob, since I kind of sprung this one on you. Um, but this is just uh, this is pretty much new news. I, I call it breaking news, if you will. It actually pu- was published uh, last night. Uh, but uh, you know, we've talked on the podcast before, including on a previous legislative news episode about this case from New York State that's going to the su- Supreme Court. That uh, I believe they are set to hear it this fall. So that's exciting. That means we probably won't hear a ruling on it until next spring. Um, but it's moving forward. And what the case is, is basically challenging New York's law prohibiting uh, people from, I mean, like it, it just, it, New York has made it so difficult for ordinary citizens to obtain and carry guns concealed for personal defense. Like in New York City, it's virtually impossible. In the rest of the state, it's still, it's not impossible, but it's very, very difficult. Right. I mean, you and I know, Jacob, we've got a a dear friend in New York City itself that, you know, has shared with us his experience and what it's like going through the permitting process just to buy a gun in New York City, yet alone be able to carry one is a whole other set of hoops to jump through that, again, is virtually impossible for most people to go through. And is quite expensive as well. But basically, we're putting all of that on the chopping block with this case going to the Supreme Court later this fall. The, the, the latest news here is that Senator Ted Cruz and 24 other Senate Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, filed an amicus brief uh, yesterday in this case. That means they're basically filing as a friend of the court. Uh, they are they're joining, you know, if you will, along with this case and making it known that um, on behalf of the plaintiff, you know, they, they want it to be known that, Hey, this, this is the side we're on and here's our position on that. And uh, you know, I appreciate the perspective they offer in the statement that they offered with this uh, amicus brief by basically saying like, look, we recognize that legislators in the state of New York, in Albany, in New York city, or in Washington, D.C., we recognize that we have differences of opinion and that many of many, many legislators don't agree with the Second Amendment. But our position is that the framers put it in there for a reason. And whether we like the Second Amendment or not, it needs to be upheld by the Supreme Court. And that's that's really a summary of their position with this amicus brief. But I, I appreciate you know, it's, it's good to have, I mean, this is not just one or two. This is, you know, basically a fourth of the U.S. Senate that is all joining forces to uh, express their opinion on this very, very important case I, I that I hope goes in the Second Amendment's favor. 
yeah. So <laughs> this stuff is, is is hard because I think that uh, we as a community think that uh, I got to be careful what I say. Or I'm gonna get hate mail, Riley. <laughs> Laws are up for interpretation, so we have to we have to just keep that in mind. That there's some context here that you know the law says something says shall not be infringed. It says right to keep and bear arms. It says certain things. But as a society, we all agree and accept that there have to be some reasonable restrictions on those rights. For example, you know, I hear people all the time say, well, it says shall not be infringed. It's like, well, I, I agree on the spirit of that, but do you think that inmates in prison then should be allowed to buy guns and have them in prison with them? No, of course not. Okay, so then we agree that there's got to be some reasonable restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms. What we don't agree on is what those what those rights are, uh, or what is what is a reasonable restriction? Now the good news is that we've had some Supreme Court Supreme Court decisions that have, you know, started to to draw a line and make it very clear. Right, Heller one and Heller two said that the 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 Second Amendment does cover the individual's right to own a gun for personal protection, and so now this this decision this you know this fall when they hear this case, hopefully leads us to a place where the Supreme Court says, not only as we already determined, does the Second Amendment cover your right to own a gun personally for personal protection, but in order for that to be true, you have to be allowed to take it outside the home with you, right? Mm -hmm. And and that is is what we need. We need this, this the Supreme Court to clarify what all of us probably listening to and watching this already feel very strongly, which is that, well, the Second Amendment should in our in our opinion, it does mean that you have the right to have the gun with you where you go, where reasonable. And that would mean outside the home. But the Supreme Court has yet to decide that. And that's why this is critical. That's why this matters. Yeah. Because to this point, we've had rulings with with limits, right? As far as how far those rulings could be extended. Uh and 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 that has been the that has been the modus operandi, operandi. Jeez, I'm just struggling yeah, to get no, words. Just go with mo. Mo, right? That has been kind of the the characteristic of this current court for some time. Uh, that uh, pe- pe- you know, people would love for them to do the kind of this overarching ruling that clarifies it in this huge, massive, you know, uh, universal way. But even with this case, it's still going to probably have some limitations as far as to how far this ruling will yeah, extend. It's, it's scope. Yeah. Yes, the scope, yeah. right. Um, meaning I'm referring to things like the McDonald ruling and the Heller decision. Uh, th- this is likely to fall in the same boat as far as there will be a, a, a scope that, hey, it extends so far. But here's the thing. We keep getting more and more of these cases over time and we're clarifying more and more pieces of the second amendment that hopefully overall over time really clarifies it fairly broadly. And we're, we're, get, we're working more that direction all the time it would seem. And with the current makeup of the court, it's all very promising as well. Yeah. And, and that, you got to have that kind of long-term vision, right? You have to, you have to recognize what's happened over time, right? I mean, it, you don't have to go back that far. 2005, to a world where there was no clarity on the Second Amendment, dang near. In 2005, we basically had no freaking clue what it meant as far as courts were concerned. Like all of us can have our own personal interpretation, what we think it should mean. 
but but there really is nothing, you know, until Heller one, until McDonald, and, and then Heller two, we really had no idea. So you know, I mean, just this is really we're dragging this one out further than we need to, but I think it's yeah. not critical. It, you know, the, the Chicago decision, the Illinois decision that, that in 2011 that caused them to institute a concealed carry permit program is really interesting because there you have a federal district court who basically rules and says no. Um, you are not giving people there's you're, you're not allowing them to exercise their Second Amendment right if you don't allow them in some way to carry a firearm in personal defense. And so Illinois says, yeah, no problem. We'll institute a concealed carry program, concealed carry permit program. And soon after, we see DC DC uh, institute one as well. And now in all 50 states plus DC, there's some sort of concealed carry permit program. However, the existence of the program, if it doesn't actually make it such that a reasonable person without you know, without any reasonable criminal record, uh, can, can still can't get that permit, then that it's still infringing, isn't it? And that's what this this next step in that journey is. In the journey of defining the Second Amendment, that's where we're at now, is we, we've had a decision, granted a federal district decision, but a strong one, that said, hey, no, you need, there's got to be some methodology. And so the press has been set that, okay, you got there's got to be a permitting program. But you look at states like Hawaii, New York City, uh, Maryland, New Jersey, where yes, the permit program exists, but it's virtually impossible to actually get that permit. Certain counties in California could be on that list as well. Yep. Then, then we're not there yet, right? That, that's what this is about. That's what this is. This, this is, this is for. Yep. Yeah. Well, moving on, and I think it actually makes a lot of sense because it's sort of of a of a similar vein uh, topically to move to this Breitbart.com story, federal appeals court handgun purchase ban for 18 to 20 year olds unconstitutional. And this is a pretty big, uh, you know, court of appeals ruling, which is a three judge panel. Now this could still be asked for an en banc review of a, of a broader court, but this is pretty huge. And, and I thought this is a natural segue be, from where we, what we were just talking about, Jacob, because there's some really powerful stuff that's actually written in this uh, three judge, uh, these three in this ruling from from this three judge panel uh, on the issue of, hey, 18, 19, and 20 year olds presently and since what, 1980, is it 86? Yeah, 86, I think, haven't been able to purchase handguns. Right, unless you got to be you got to be twenty one years of age or older, and so um, this is this is a, a really really cool ruling to see. And granted, it's a court of appeals, so this would need to go to the national level to really have national implications. But Jacob, uh, I imagine you went through this and are familiar with this uh, appeals court ruling. Uh, what was kind of the gist of this one? So, in case yeah, in case you don't know, it's currently a felony for a anyone under the age of twenty one to purchase a handgun. Uh, it just can't do it, right? They can and handgun ammo, right? Correct. Yeah, they can purchase a long gun. That's fine. Which we've had we had recent drama about that, but no no handgun. And so we saw a lot of pushes after Parkland to drive the uh, the purchase of long guns to twenty one as well. And now we're seeing this decision, which is basically the opposite direction, saying no, no, no. We need to we need to bring uh, handguns down to eighteen, uh, where long guns are. And so I think that's that's a pretty critical kind of concept, um, and and that's that's the gist. The gist is, wait a minute, like if if the the way the written the the decision was written by this three panel judge 
uh, court is that it's very clear that our founding fathers intended for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds to be part of the local militia to the degree that in many in many jurisdictions it was required. It was mandated that an 18-year-old be part of the militia and bring their own gun with them, supply their own fire. And so if, if it's clear that the people who wrote the Second Amendment intended for it to, to be extended to 18, 19, 20-year-olds, then why are we, you know, th- that it's got to be unconstitutional that those same people not be able to buy a common handgun that's used, you know, to that degree today. That's that's the gist of the thing. Um, for those who, are, who don't know the Fourth District Court, because what's, what's interesting about this kind of decision, when you have a district court who's saying, well, something... The, you know, a federal law is unconstitutional. That's super awkward, right? Because the federal district court doesn't have the authority to eliminate a federal law. Now, it, it could have some implications, right? It could cause uh, this law to be debated, you know, by the U.S. Supreme Court or to you know by the legislature or who knows whatever else. And it could definitely have implications within that district court region, right? Within that area where that court operates. So, I wanted to quickly mention the states that are included in the 4th District Court, which are uh, West Virginia, Virginia, uh, almost, I think all of Virginia, uh, Maryland, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Hmm. So those all make up the 4th Circuit Court. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to know. And and it's not uncommon. I don't recall from this news story, or if it it even mentions it, it's not uncommon with rulings like this that they will... uh, 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 you know, put an injunction on it. In, in other words, not suggest that anything takes effect, meaning it's not like, I don't think this is saying that. And again, I don't remember reading about this or not, but it's not uncommon for them to say suddenly, well, guess what? If you live in one of these States in the fourth circuit, uh, then you can just, if you're 18, 19, 20, you can go right out and buy handguns. Now um, it's not uncommon for the, for them to be, well, hold on until this is settled further. You know, we're gonna this. We know this is gonna go up. We know it's gonna be appealed or that kind of thing. Um, anyway, I don't know, but I do want to highlight a couple of key phrases that come from the actual opinion, the majority opinion written by Judge Julius Richardson and joined by Judge Stephen Agree. I love that name. I'm Judge Agree. I agree with you. <laughs> Might be a little awkward when Judge Agree doesn't agree. <laughs> anyway, um, there's some really cool things. Like I could tell they really did their homework on this case. Now, whether they already knew a lot of this stuff or whether they, they researched it further, but I think it would behoove any judge to study and research this part of our history a little bit further because some of the stuff they pull out of this is really interesting. First of all, I, I won't read everything, but this is a really cool quote from this uh, opinion. It, it, they say that in the founder's world, Individual self-protection and community defense were not wholly separate spheres. Basically saying that the founders believed that you couldn't really separate in you know personal or individual protection from community defense. So so those that would try to argue that, well, the Second Amendment is more about you know a community defense versus an individual defense. They're saying that that's that's not really cohesive with what the founders envisioned and and, and how the world actually was at that time. Um, another really cool quote that uh, jumped out at me uh, was, was where they they talk about 
1791, when the Second Amendment was ratified, Congress began debating invoking its power under the militia clauses to better organize the militias for federal use in emergencies. And it says that the effort was even pushed by Secretary of War Henry Knox, who argued to Congress that while the military age has generally commenced at 16, okay, put that into context, right? The age for the federal select militia should be set at 18 because, and here's the reasoning, the youth of 16 do not commonly attain such a degree of robust strength as to enable them to sustain without injury the hardships incident to the field. So this becomes a like a, a, a historically and federally recognized reasoning behind the age of, well, why 18? And why 18 in matters such as the militia? And it was basically believed that, well, hey, you know, younger than 18, a little bit still too, you know, too small and too weak and not strong enough and able to handle the hardships of, of war, basically. Yeah, if they get injured, they're probably not going to make it. Yeah. And there was another, and it's not mentioned in this article, but there was another one that I read about this ruling that mentioned how the expectation from many of those that would be uh, uh, drafted, if you will, into the militia at age 18 or later was that they would they would have to bring their own weapon with them. And so how, you know, how, like, it had to be that founders, un, the, uh, that they intended for 18-plus-year-olds to be able to possess firearms because if they went into the militia at 18, they'd have to bring their own firearm. And that was part of, the, that was also part of this, this uh, opinion that uh, I saw published in another area that was uh, pretty, pretty cool to read. So really awesome research and homework done by these two judges on this ruling. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, we'll see uh, where this fourth circuit court of appeals uh, opinion goes from here. Let's go now to this BearingArms.com article. California judge gives green light to lawsuit against Smith and Wesson. This feels like a broken record, doesn't it? Oh yeah. So I don't know. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for five years, <laughs> five and a half, five and a half years. And I don't know how many times we've seen this happen. At least four or five. So you know, maybe it's basically you count on this happening once a year. But someone who lost somebody in a shooting is, is approached by big anti-gun lobbyist. And, and they say, Hey, you lost someone. We can get you some money. And more importantly, we can use your tragedy to, you know, to, to go after the horrible gun makers who make guns and really cripple them. And, you know, tragic lost people say, yes, that's a good idea. And I like money too. And so you get huge anti-gun lobbyist group teamed up with, you know, under the guise of, I shouldn't say under the guise, but you know, with the names of these people who lost family members in some tragedy uh, to go file a lawsuit against a gun manufacturer. Now, it's a broken record because we always know the end of the story. They're going to lose a lawsuit. Like the federal law is really clear on this. Like it, it just, we got endless, it seems like, you know, I'm, I'm being facetious. But we have what seems like endless examples of the courts holding up the uh, Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, PLCAA. And because we, we know it's how it's going to end, you might ask, well, then why? Like, why are people trying to sue gun manufacturers? In this case, they're trying to sue law, to, to, to bring suit against Smith & Wesson. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Why would they do that? It's all about the money. 
It's about dragging this out and, and causing Smith and Wesson to spend a bunch of money. It's also because when you when you take someone to court, it allows you to get access to a bunch of their records, right? Oh, now they have to they have to make discoverable this information about their business. They have to make public this information about their manufacturing process or about their marketing campaigns and objectives. And so it's all about attack on the industry, despite knowing it can't it directly can't succeed. It's all about the indirect. Uh, benefits to the anti-gun lobby. So in this case, the game is all about, well, Smith & Wesson was was actively choosing to market a product to children, you know, uh, who, who are at more at higher risk for committing these horrible, violent crimes. And Smith & Wesson actively, knowingly built a gun that could readily be converted into an illegal thing, you know, fully automatic gun. And so those those are their two crimes, right? I mean, it, it's it'd be one thing if they just you know built guns the you know whatever, but no no no, they went above and beyond. They marketed them to these at risk youth, and they made a gun that's readily convertible into an illegal item. And so what this this ruling is is not oh yeah Smith Wesson is guilty. This ruling is okay on one of these charges we, we're calling BS. On the other one, we see it as potentially viable. So we're going to allow this lawsuit to happen. The courts will still sort it out. We probably know how it's going to end. But but this decision is just that we're going to allow this to proceed on this on this count. What's interesting about this case is how the Brady campaign is, you know, their approach for arguing this case. So a couple of the arguments that they're trying to make, number one, we're trying to argue that Smith and Wesson knowingly violated federal law regarding sales of quote unquote machine guns to the general public. Okay. Even though the weapons in question are of your standard AR 15 semi-automatic design, they're trying to make the argument that that semi-automatic AR 15s are readily convertible to become machine guns. And that Smith and Wesson knows this, therefore they should be liable for their Smith and Wesson rifle being used in in uh, uh, the the shooting. This this was by the way this this lawsuit comes out of uh, it comes from family members of victims of the shooting at the Chabad of Poe Synagogue in I, I'm probably butchering pronunciations of in Poe California in 2019. So apparently Smith and Wesson rifle was used in that. I don't know whether the person that was using that had readily converted that to be able or be capable of fully auto fire, but it's really irrelevant. Brady campaigns trying to argue that Smith and Wesson knowingly is making their AR-15 rifles to be readily convertible to be machine guns. And uh, this is consistent with the current anti-gun side of, you know, of anti-gun legislation of gun control uh, that that they're trying to paint the AR 15 rifle as being this terrible weapon of mass destruction, right? David Chipman, who, you know, is up has been talked about quite a bit in recent history about, you know, uh, leading the ATF um, who, you know, he's taught, he's basically made similar statements, right? That, you know, t- talking about semi-automatic guns and how easy it is to get, I guess, auto- fully automatic guns, whatever. I don't know. 
Curiously enough, the judge initially sounded like he was going to reject their argument about this, but now is still allowing them to make the argument conflating semi-automatic rifles with machine guns, says the article. Um, but the judge also decided that the second, their second argument, uh, which was that they basically it's that they're the other argument that Brady's trying to make is, is that Smith and Wesson is targeting marketing to young people. And that it's the idea is that it's well known that younger people tend to be those that uh, commit these mass shootings and that Smith and Wesson by their targeting of young people, as it says in their marketing is influencing that in some regard. I think that's, I think that's quite a stretch. Well, I think a lot of allowing this, this to go forward. Yeah, this is, this is a, this is a long stretch The the AR 15 thing, you know, it should be where the like the danger signs go off a little bit, right? But I, I honestly don't think this thing will stand stand water when it all comes down to it. Like I said, you know, before. Um, but you know, can can a semi-automatic AR-15 be converted to full auto? Of course it can. Obvious, obviously, it can. But doing that's already a crime. If that's already a criminal offense without proper licenses and stuff that I don't have. Riley doesn't have it. So me and Riley can't go converting our AR-15s to fully automatic. That would be that would be criminal. So, um, uh, yeah, it's already criminal. Like, I don't, I don't think we need to go make the AR-15 uh, illegal because it could be converted into something illegal. Like, things that are illegal are already illegal. It's already a crime to do that. I mean – can't a large number of objects in my home be converted into illegal things? I mean, household materials can be made into bombs, does that, but most of those household materials are not illegal. Some of them are regulated right. uh, you know, to some degree, which AR-15s are already pretty regulated. So anyway, I just think the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah. Well, it, and it's ridiculous too, because a fully automatic rifle is far from, if I want to actually, if I want to be, I, I hate saying this, or I want to be careful saying this. If I was to commit mass murder, fully automatic is not the way I'd do it. Yeah, pretty inefficient. Tool. Because I'll be far more effective if I actually aim shots in critical parts of the body. And that behooves me to not use fully auto because I won't be as as precise. So so it, it it's a it's a you know it's a red herring argument anyway, um, because this is not really an issue. Uh, now, Scott on Facebook asks, what marketing did they supposedly do towards children? And by the way, they specifically, like in this, it says young people. And they're actually talking like, I don't know where the age comes from. Like but 35 and younger or yeah. 34 and younger or something like that. People that are age 35 and younger. But the type of target or type of marketing that it, that Brady complain, campaign is complaining about is how they were targeting youth with advertisements over social media and through video game-like commercials despite the known risks that young people in that demographic are highly susceptible to that type of advertising and have disproportionately perpetrated mass shootings using similar firearms. That's quoting from, from their statement there. Um, so yeah, you know what, maybe you should be talking to the video game companies because the, the what's per perpetrated in video games is probably far more uh, influential than like Smith and Wesson's marketing, frankly. And they're not protected by federal law either. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. But besides the fact that, okay, even if they are marketing, uh, you still have to be of a certain age to actually purchase and acquire those weapons and stuff. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, do, I, I agree that 
you know, a gun manufacturer should not be running advertising specifically targeting children, eight-year-olds. Like, yeah, I, sure. I, I, I'm like, if we want to regulate that, like, I'd like to, uh, depending on how it's written and all those kinds of things, I could probably endorse that law. Like, I, I, I think that's probably not a bad idea. In the same way, we don't allow cigarette companies uh, to to target youth either. So, uh, yeah, I'm not. I, I get that, mm-hmm. but that you know, just because the thing happens to be present in a, in a video game they're playing. Or if if advertising is being run, I mean I don't know the details. I haven't I haven't seen the discovery, right? I don't have access to the evidence that the, that they're bringing to trial. Sure, but uh, I find it hard to believe that Smith and Wesson is running ads on Facebook targeting fourteen year olds that make AR fifteens look awesome with the click here to buy button. I, I I just don't I have a hard time believing that's true. Yeah, besides it's silly and pointless because i have magazines sitting on my coffee table right now american rifleman guns and ammo and the uspsa magazine that has all kinds of advertising in it that's not necessarily maybe mark you know geared to or targeted to my young children but they're gonna see it because it's in my living room so what big whoop anyway yeah well let's go now to uh louisiana so i kind of hinted at this earlier but uh Unfortunately, the constitutional carry bill that was passed uh, a month or a month and a half or so ago um, in Louisiana was 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 vetoed by Governor Edwards on June 28th, and unfortunately, they did not. You know, the, the Senate Republicans were not able to get enough support to override that veto. So, the constitutional carry bill that we previously talked about on a legislative update episode uh, is not, you know, constitutional carry is dead in Louisiana because of this for vetoed for by this, governor for this year. Yeah. yeah. Vetoed by the governor and they couldn't overcome it. Uh, kind of looked like maybe they would be able to, but there were there, it said that there were at least three Republicans that voted against that, you know, overriding that veto. So um, it just they changed quite, their vote. Yeah. Yeah. They actually, correct. They actually changed their vote from, they supported the bill when it went through the legislature in the first place, but because the governor vetoed it, apparently decided they needed to go the other way. I don't know. I was joking with you beforehand. I, I kind of feel like there was probably some, some promises made behind the scenes to, uh, for the governor to maybe prioritize some certain people's projects to to sway to sway their vote. I don't know. That that, that sort of thing uh, happens all the time, obviously. All the time, right? It's it's politics and nature. You know, someone might say, well, this is for the greater good or whatever. One one person specifically, Senator Patrick Connick, said that since that time, meaning when he originally voted for the bill, I've talked to my law enforcement agencies at home. Those law officers uh, said, please don't override this veto. So he claims that you know his his constituents are are you know these the law enforcement officers and that are his constituents uh, asked him to to over to not override the veto to let the veto stand. Uh, yeah, maybe that's true. I don't know, but um, yeah, we always see you know law enforcement officials who are generally elected people, not actually like cops who rose through the ranks. They they tend to not like constitutional carry. Well, no, that's pretty standard. Uh, sheriffs usually are a little more pro gun. A lot of times, it's usually the chief of police. You know, the chiefs that are appointed by mayors, mayors that tend to be more anti gun and stuff like that. That's where I. That's where like this was actually one that surprised me a little bit because it's actually 
the Plaque Mines Parish Sheriff, the Gretna Sheriff, and the West Wago Chief of Police. There were three specific ones that he listed that said, please don't override this bill. Um, I think that's a, a dang shame um, that you have these law enforcement officers, these sheriffs, this chief of police saying this. Uh, you know, in the case of sheriffs, to your point, those are elected officials in most instances. So, folks, if you live in Louisiana and you have one of your sheriffs that voiced opposition to this bill, I would be expressing my displeasure with them and letting them know that that's going to be held against them when they come up for re-election. In the case of a chief of police, you may not have as much influence there because they're, they're often appointed by a city they council serve, or mayor. They serve or, at the pleasure of the mayor. Yeah. So they, yeah. You know, they, they're still an elected official behind that appointment. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, we, we've got a sheriff here uh, right now, Jacob, a kind of sidebar here, but uh, Jefferson County Sheriff, Sheriff Schrader, he's voicing his opposition to, we have the uh, Foothills Parks and Recreation District that we have parks that are in our area that are managed by Foothills. And uh, they are trying to, um, that they're looking at passing a no gun policy in their parks. Uh, and Sheriff Schrader straight up sent a letter saying, as sheriff, I'm not going to enforce anybody that's caught with guns in your parks. Yeah, we like Sheriff Schrader. He does, <laughs> he does right by the people. Anyway, moving on to Hawaii. You mentioned Hawaii earlier as an example. Um, oh, Hawaii. Yeah. So tell us, we got House Bill 1366 and House Bill 31. Uh, two anti-gun bills that have been signed, so they are now officially law in Hawaii. Let me let me start by saying that Hawaii does not get enough attention from our community. What I mean by that is, when you think of like the anti-gun states, the states with the you know the most strict, horrible gun laws, uh, we often cite places like Chicago and New York and New New Jersey. All that is very much so earned. However. Uh, none of them hold a candle to Hawaii. Hawaii is the worst, in my opinion. In my opinion, Hawaii is the worst state relative to gun laws there is. Like, I just, nothing compares, in my humble opinion. And these two new laws are uh, Mm mind-blowing. Neither of them are new laws. They're both kind of clarifications or adding some detail to existing gun control laws that are already on the books. So House Bill 1366, basically it changes the language regarding home-built firearms, ghost guns. So previously, when the law went into effect, um, it it allowed for sort of like a, like a grandfathered-in thing. Like, well, if you already had these guns, right, if you owned them prior to the ban going into effect last year, it's cool, it's all good. Well, not anymore. The new law, House Bill 1366, changes that. It amends that component. And it goes into effect, by the way, on January 1st. 2022. So if you live in Hawaii and you own a bunch of you know non-serialized guns, you, you might want to bell before January. Um, House Bill 31 it, it amends and changes the mandatory firearm storage law, which I read today. Uh, it's pretty interesting. But the change is it 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 increases the age because the way uh, Hawaii's mandatory storage law works is the law only takes effect in your home if you have children in your home that reasonably might gain access. So what changed is the definition of children from a maximum age of 16 
up to 18. Hmm. So, you know, prior to this new law going to effect, my 17-year-old, if, if my, my youngest kid in the house was 17, I was exempt from the mandatory storage law. And now with this new law, uh, House Bill 31, which goes, it's already, it goes into effect immediately when it was signed by the governor. So it's, it's law now. Uh, that, that changes where now my 17-year-old, because I have a 17-year-old in the house or an 18-year-old in the house, I'm now accountable to the Hawaii mandatory storage requirements. Yeah. How many times have we shared stories in our Justified Saves episodes where juveniles, those under 18, were able to obtain firearms within the home and successfully defend themselves and others within the home with them? Uh, many times. Yeah. So you, you're basically making it illegal in a state like Hawaii to, you know, for that to be a possibility like that, 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 that can no longer happen. The, the, those under the age of 18 cannot have access to firearms at all. Uh, and by the way, you know, for the record, like we're not talking about allowing eight year olds and, you know, six year olds to have guns or anything like that. But what we are saying is, and, and this is my personal opinion on this is that I think every family and every parent should have, I mean, this is their domain. This is their child. This is their space that they have authority over as parents should be able to make the, the, the decisions for themselves and for their household as to how they approach issues like this. So you have a, a, a 16 year old, a 15 year old that you allow to have some limited access to firearms uh, that you trust them and, and, and know them to be uh, of sound mind and body then like, guess what? I think that should be your right as a parent to, to allow that to be an option. And there, again, there's plenty of cases where, uh, you know, even 12 year olds have been able to uh, successfully defend them and themselves and their family members from vicious attacks inside their homes. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to advocate any one particular age or anything like that. I'm just saying that I think families should be the authority in situations like this. So I, I, I really abhor this type of legislation. The other thing I want to point out is that the language in House Bill 1366, I think, is, is terrible language and is very nonspecific. And it talks about how it's illegal for any combination of parts from which a firearm having no serial number may be readily assembled, provided that the parts do not have the capacity to function as a firearm unless assembled. And it's <laughs> yeah, like, what does that even mean? Where, like where sites? Do, where do we, yeah, where do we draw the line with language like that? Like what becomes illegal per House Bill 1366 to possess? Like, can I not have certain spare parts for already existing guns in case they go down? Like as a competitive shooter, that's really huge for me. I have spare triggers, spare sears, spare springs, spare all kinds of things. For serialized for, guns. For for guns and for you know, because those are where items, they are where parts that break and need to be replaced from time to time. And so where do we draw the line with a law like this as to which firearm parts I may and may not be, may, may and may not be able to possess. And this law does not clarify that with any sort of certainty. Like I, I don't even know, I don't know what I would be thinking right now if I lived in Hawaii. And we have the interruption of the, uh, the pups there. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's all I had to say about this Hawaii deal. And while Jacob's uh, silencing the the pups, let's move on now to 
Attorney General Derek Schmidt out of Topeka, Kansas, describes changes in concealed carry law taking effect on July 1st. So this, this, this has taken effect already, right? Um, but several changes in the Kansas concealed carry law took effect today as of July 1st, as of the reading of this uh, press release, including a reduction in application fees, Attorney General Derek Schmidt said. Uh, among the changes approved during the 2021 Kansas legislative session, a new provisional license will be available for individuals between 18 to 20 years of age. Pretty cool. New provisions also allow issuance of a concealed carry license to individuals who have had certain prior felony or misdemeanor convictions expunged. I think that's pretty cool, actually. Um under the terms of the budget passed by the legislature for state fiscal year 2022, the application fee will be reduced from $132.50 to $112. Now, that may still be quite expensive for many of you. And depending on what states you're in, that is very expensive for some of you to get permits. But hey, it's going down, and that's a good downward trend to see. Uh, the reduced rate applies to applications received by sheriff's offices between July 1st, 2021 and June 30th, 2022. So, uh, oh, and by the way, the cost for license renewals remains unchanged at $25. So some, some interesting clarifications from the state attorney general. I, I particularly think it's interesting that, uh, that there's a provisional license available for individuals between 18, and 20 years of age. I think that's, pretty remarkable we're actually seeing, we're seeing more states do that mm -hmm. and the fact that there's they're basically making a pathway forward for individuals that have had felonies and misde certain misdemeanors uh expunged from the record uh me personally knowing some individuals that would fit that category um but yet still are unable to obtain things like concealed carry permits like Okay, they might need to move move to Kansas. Knowing that now, that's I think that's uh, I think that's a novel idea, because yeah, yeah. My, my my personal opinion on this is that once you've paid the price, I think that you should be able to get all your rights reinstated. That's my personal opinion. Ooh, uh, I don't know if I'm on the same page with you on that, and I don't know the spec specifics here in Kansas. I I do think that generally speaking, it's too difficult to get one's rights restored. So I'm generally on the side of making that easier, clearer, uh, more straightforward, um, et cetera. But, on expungements, uh, though? like, Oh, no, no, sure. If it's expunged, it's expunged. Like, you should like, get your rights I restored. think that, to, yeah, yeah. to me, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Like, if you sure. got something expunged, there's a good reason why it was expunged. And so why wouldn't you be able to have all rights restored? Sure, sure, sure. So an expungement, I think I agree with you. Uh, yeah. But I, I don't know the specificity here in Kansas. Like I, I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find the, you know, how it was written or what it said. Um, and there's a link here for, to the attorney general where he says you get more detail and I just didn't have a chance to read it. But yeah, um, yeah. I, I generally err on the side of believing that today it's way too complex, way too difficult um, and way too unclear how one gets their rights restored at all. Yeah. And, and more, and, and that needs to be fixed, yeah. you know, generally speaking. Right. Absolutely. I, I think that there, this is something that most states could give a lot of thought to about providing pathways forward for, for ex-convicts to, to be able to have rights restored. Sure. Uh, you know, knowing, and you know, someone too, and I, I, I have a family member that has a pretty serious charge on their record that will keep them from being able to do certain things. 
And, but that person has completely changed their life around and has proven that over years of being a productive law abiding citizen of society. And I, I think it's unfortunate and incredibly unjust that, that person currently does not have a clear path forward to be able to have rights restored when they, when they have proven that they are a, a valued member of society now. Anyway. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah. But I, I, I don't agree, agree with the blanket premise that if someone pays the time, you know, pays, pays for the crime, then they should have their rights restored. Well, don't, don't get that confused. I, I, I'm on the record of saying something to the effect of that, that I, I could see something like, I'm not saying that as soon as you get out of prison, for instance, like let's say you were in an armed robbery and you do 10 years in prison and the day after you get out of prison that you supposedly have paid the price and therefore automatically get all rights restored. Like I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that let's say that you you did an armed robbery and you get out of prison, you did your time, you have even maybe five years of probation or something like that. And but but you know, at some point. Like, let's say you go 10 years without committing any other crimes. Like, I don't know. I just feel like that's still unjust that, you know, because because people do like it provides no incentive really for people to actually make their lives better when they know I've already thrown my life away. I might as well just continue down that path. I'm glad you clarified because what you said was a little too blanket for me. Well, um, and what, I was what, being especially in the context of expungements and sure, in, in sure, sure, sure. Yeah, ago, yeah. But yeah, yeah I. What, what the problem today is there's no clear way to apply for and obtain the restoration yeah, of the rights. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem. It's, it's, it's not just that, you know, the, the it's, we don't need an arbitrary line where when X is complete, now you get your rights back. What we need, at least initially, at least as a starting point, is a clear method to apply to get the rights back. And be a that process. doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is low cost and low, um, that, that, in other words, like, like right now, if you're going to, in certain states especially, like you've got to hire an attorney and spend thousands and thousands of dollars for them to work the process in the system and try to get in front of the right people. And in some states, you got to have the governor of that state actually say, yeah, okay, we'll give you a pardon on that. And that is pretty much unattainable for most people. You know, yeah, processes yeah. like that. Unrealistic. Having a process where like you can you can send in an application to the court and have them review everything and you can show and, and provide written testimony of here's how I've changed my life. And I've evidenced that over X number of time or years or whatever. And like, you know, hear my case and you know, like having at least a process where it can just be done. I definitely think it's something that could be looked at, but anyway, we're getting kind of Ditto. out there, but cool. Oh, well that brings us, I think to the conclusion of the legislative news stories we had for you today. I do want to point out that in the show notes, you will find uh, a couple of additional resources. There is a, uh, uh, an article on our site at concealedcarry.com called constitutional carry and permitless carry breaking down the pros and cons. So if you want to go review that and, and study a little bit more about uh, constitutional carry, it's a, it's a good article. And also, just a, a reminder, many of you probably already know this, but we have a pretty useful tool on our site called our, our Concealed Carry Reciprocity Map Generator. And it's a cool tool because it's completely customizable based on your particular uh, circumstances uh, or situation. You know, if you have multiple permits, for instance, like some of you do from multiple states, you can plug in all that information on our Reciprocity Map Generator and it'll give you a custom map 
for you, showing where and wh- where and where you cannot carry uh, concealed you know, as far as uh, various states and whatnot. And of course, that same tool is available on our Concealed Carry Gun Tools app as well, which is free free to download. So with that brings us, like I mentioned, to an end. Uh, appreciate you doing this episode with me today, Jacob. Uh, our uh, episode sponsors again were Excess Sites, excesssites.com, and our new Shall Not Be Infringed t-shirt from concealedcarry.com. You can find that at concealedcarry.com forward slash infringed shirt. Hope you guys will consider picking one of those up. Uh, I think they're pretty cool. I'm, I plan to get mine here hopefully soon. But uh, uh, Jacob, any last words? I guess I'll just end by saying uh, we really appreciate everyone's business. You know, when you wake up tomorrow and you think you need some new related gear to do with shooting a gun and being a defensive-minded America, we hope that you'll go to concealcarry.com and you'll start there. We attempt to obviously be the best priced, and we wouldn't expect you to overpay to do us a solid, but we would hope that you would consider us in your shopping needs as we continue to expand the uh, library of products that we offer and we work hard to have competitive prices. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yep. We, we are striving to do our best. And uh, good news is right now, folks, uh, you know, we're doing very well on the fulfillment side of things. So orders that come in ship very quickly. Many of them are shipping same day. And that's not always been the case for us, but uh, we're, we're, you know, pretty happy with where we're at. We've got a great, great team of guys, great staff, uh, customer service side, you know, answering phones, emails, and the guys actually in the warehouse shipping stuff, all doing a great job. And we're proud to have them on our team. Yeah, we've turned several corners that way recently. Yeah. Um, and even with some specific profit products that we've been just behind on for feels like years, uh, we're getting caught up on. I'll, I'll mention quickly dummy ammo. We've been behind on dummy ammo for like ever. And we're finally getting, you know, we're about to turn the corner on that and, and be in stock all the time on dummy mm-hmm. ammo. So anyway, if you, yeah. if you've, you know, been frustrated with us in the past, we have not been perfect, but we are in a much better place today with yeah. our customer service and our fulfillment operation. Yeah. We, we've implemented some new software. We've got a whole new inventory system, all kinds of things that uh, it just, we've made a lot of gains in that respect. And the dummy ammo thing is really cool because that's, that was uh, really a limitation from COVID-19 that it seems like we're just finally starting to get behind us a little bit. And our supplier on dummy ammo is uh, really cranking them out now. It's really exciting to see. So we'll be hopefully well-stocked on dummy ammo here very shortly. Yep. Well, guys, uh, again, thanks for your support. I'll just uh, leave my parting words as being, guys, be safe out there. Have a great rest of your week and a great weekend. I hope you're able to get out to the range, do some practice, do some training, maybe shoot a a competitive match or whatever it is, but do something to make yourself better and a little bit sharper and a little bit, be- uh, a little bit more skilled uh, with the application of, of whether it's a gun or other tools or hand to hand, doesn't matter. I hope you do something to make yourself better. So I know I continue to work at it. So guys, until next time, a reminder to train right, train often and train safe so that you can fight hard, fight fast and fight true. Take care.
reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.